You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. With me today is my co-host, Cindy Johnson, Operations Manager for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. I want to thank all our loyal listeners out there and welcome everybody to episode 63 of Lighthearted. This episode also marks the one-year anniversary of this podcast, which debuted on June 1st, 2019. It's been a real pleasure producing and hosting it for the past year. And Cindy, thank you for being the very affable co-host for just about half of the episodes. Well, I'm grateful to be a part of it. So congratulations on one year of lighthearted, Jeremy. Thank you. It's hard to believe. Time flies when you're having fun. Uh, We're recording this a little bit earlier on May 10th during the age of social distancing because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And because of that, we are once again recording via Skype instead of in person. I still haven't gotten used to all this. It's a little different, but I think we're making it work. So I was looking to see what else is special about June 1st. It marks the start of the Atlantic hurricane season, for one thing, and it's also Heimlich Maneuver Day. But Cindy, please don't choke on anything while we're recording today because I can't do the Heimlich Maneuver for you over Skype. (laughs) Okay, I'll try not to. Okay, thanks. Uh, (laughs) June 1st is also the birthday of of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, She'd be 94 years old today. I think she was a pretty complicated person. Uh, Cindy, I believe you have a quote from Marilyn Monroe? I do. She once said, quote, We are all of us stars, and we deserve to twinkle, unquote. I think that's a good quote for a podcast about lighthouses. Yeah, I would say so. I think so, too. (laughs) Anyway, our subject today is White Shoal Lighthouse in Michigan, one of the most isolated lighthouses on the Great Lakes. Our guest will be one of the owners of the lighthouse and the co-chair of the White Shoal Light Historical Preservation Society, Brent Tompkins. Cindy, please help me tell our listeners about White Shoal Lighthouse. Sure, Jeremy. White Shoal Lighthouse is 20 miles west of the Mackinac Bridge in Mackinac City at the northeast end of Lake Michigan. It was the culmination of an effort to build lighthouses on the Great Lakes on isolated islands, reefs, and shoals that were hazards to navigation. Before lighthouses were built at these locations, they were marked by lightships that were difficult to maintain and dangerous for the sailors who served on them. The Lighthouse Board built several lighthouses on underwater cribs before White Shoal, including Wagashant's Light in 1851 to help guide shipping from the Straits of Mackinac into Lake Michigan. White Shoal is a few miles northwest of Wagashant's Lighthouse. A lightship was stationed at the Shoal in 1891, and then $250,000 was appropriated for a lighthouse in 1907. Work began in the spring of 1908. The crib was built using 400,000 square feet of timber, 3,700 cubic yards of concrete, and 4,000 tons of rock. A reinforced concrete pier, 20 feet above the surface of the lake, tops the crib foundation. The conical tower is made of steel and terracotta blocks lined with brick. It has the only lantern made of aluminum on the Great Lakes. The light is 125 feet above the mean surface of the lake. 
The lantern originally held a bivalve second-order Fresnel lens, which rotated on Mercury, showing a white flash every eight seconds that was visible for 20 miles in clear weather. There was a fog whistle operated by compressed air and also an electric submarine fog bell three-quarters of a mile northeast of the lighthouse. Four keepers were assigned to the lighthouse, which is nine stories in height. When it was first built, the tower was white with a black band. It was changed in 1927 to a black tower with a silver-gray lantern. In 1937, the tower was changed back to white. In 1954, it was given its distinctive red and white spiral bands. The station was automated and de-staffed in 1976. White Shoal Lighthouse is featured on the Save Our Lights license plate for the state of Michigan, the sale of which helps fund lighthouse preservation. In May 2014, the lighthouse was made available to a new steward through the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act. There were no applicants for ownership, so an online auction was held beginning in July 2016. Five bidders participated in the auction, which ended in September 2016 with a high bid of $110,009. The new owners, Brent Tompkins and Mike Lynch, founded the White Shoal Light Historical Preservation Society. The mission of the organization is to fully restore White Shoal Light to the mid-1950s era and to make it accessible to the public. Tompkins and Lynch are both licensed contractors, and they're using their skills and training as they restore the lighthouse. Restoration is still in its early stages, but they've been able to launch overnight stays at the lighthouse for the public. Information on the overnight stays is available at preservewhiteshoal.org. I had the chance to talk with Brent Tompkins, co-owner of White Shoal Lighthouse. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking with Brent Tompkins, co-owner of White Shoal Lighthouse. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Brent. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Jeremy. Thanks for having us on. I really You're... appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with you guys. So, what in the first place led you and Mike Lynch to buy White Shoal Lighthouse? Uh, I'm wondering if buying a lighthouse was something you had thought about before uh, this one came up. You know, I've, I've been a fan of lighthouses since I was a little kid. And I always had pictures of them on my walls. You know, it was always, it was kind of a, a joke in high school because my friends would have, you know, Star Wars pictures on their walls and I had pictures of lighthouses and nautical <laughs> charts adorning the walls of my bedroom. So I was a little bit of a nerd, um, in that sense, but I always loved lighthouses, especially loved growing up in Michigan, the offshore lights. The offshore lights were something that just fascinated me and I never really knew, even knew about them until a book by a good friend of mine, John Wagner, uh, Ariel's Perspective of Michigan Lighthouses, came out in the early 90s. And that opened up the world to me as far as these lights that were located, you know, some of them as far as 40 miles offshore in the middle of the Great Lakes. And just the logistics and the fact that, you know, Coast Guardsmen and lighthouse keepers lived out there up to nine months out of the year was just absolutely fascinating to me. I couldn't believe it. And, you know, the fact that they had to generate their own power and everything, I was just blown away. And so I was always a fan and made it a goal of mine early in life to try to visit as many of the offshore lights as possible. And some of them are very difficult to get to. And in fact, I still have many on my list that I have not visited. 
ironically, White Shoal, I never saw it in person until the summer we started bidding on it in 2016. I'd hoped to make it out long before that, just never had a boat or an opportunity to get out to see it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as far as what got me interested in actually bidding, I never realized that you could even own a lighthouse until about 2009. I owe that uh, to my brother-in-law, Paul. I was down working on a home uh, in Columbus, Ohio, restoring an old home down there for him in, in the winter, actually, of 2009. And he had, we were in conversation, he had mentioned that he was looking at a lighthouse for sale in Lake Erie. And I don't even recall which one it was at the time back in 09, but that really sparked an interest in me. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize you could actually bid on a lighthouse and own it. And so that kind of stuck with me for a, for a while. And then life, you know, took over young kids, family, uh, 09, 10, 11, 12, um, 2015, I actually happened onto one of the auction pages of the government website, and uh, it was for a little island light called Skilligalee up in northern Lake Michigan. And I was really interested in that. Tried to talk a friend to maybe going in on it with me halves. But at the end of the day, it was an island full of bird guano. Um, you know, basically from May to July, it's a rookery for the cormorants. And the only thing you were going to end up with was a little uh, tower in the middle of the island, which still is very cool in my mind, but very busy year for me in, in 2015. Um, so it just kind of fell off the radar. And then in 2016, I started looking at property. Uh, I really wanted something like on an island. We've got a lot of offshore islands in the Great Lakes and my family and I had always camped up in Garden Peninsula, up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And off the tip of the Garden Peninsula, there's, um, many islands, Big Summer Island, Little Summer Island, Poverty Island. And I really was interested in finding some property on particularly Big Summer Island. I wanted something that was off the grid, no electricity, very difficult to get to. You know, what everybody looks for in a property, a vacation property, nearly impossible logistics, right? So, <laughs> but what happened is, is as I was looking that early spring in 2016 at these island properties, a friend of mine texted me the link to the government auction site again, which had kind of fallen off my radar at that time. I wasn't really paying attention. And lo and behold, White Shoal Light, which was always one of my favorites, just based on where it was located and the look of it, was at auction. And I just couldn't believe it. And I thought, you know what, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Something that, you know, is nearly impossible to get to logistically. It's it's a nightmare. So I was interest, you know, interested immediately. And at that point, I had to, you know, find somebody who would partner up with me because I knew I would never be able to get this lighthouse and bid on it and win it. Never really believed I'd ever bid on it and win it from the day one when we started bidding. But that's where Mike enters in. He was a good friend of mine, a contractor friend. We're both in uh, remodeling. He's in commercial end and I'm in the residential end of restoration. And he had been a subcontractor of mine for many years. And this one happened to be in 2016, the summer I had him up for to help me on a job in northern Michigan and I were sitting around at lunch just having a casual conversation and I pull up the the uh, website and I show him this lighthouse and I'm like Mike what do you think about this I think I'm gonna bid on it and he just went crazy and if you know Mike and uh, maybe you can do a separate interview with him I know he wasn't available to do one today but uh, he's a character he's a great guy he'd be interesting to talk to about his whole take on the thing. But basically over the course of this lunch conversation, he was all in. He's like, I'm in, let's bid on it. Let's go. 
will partner up on the thing and he never wavered ever since. And he was not really, he never, he had never heard a white show light. <laughs> you know, he's not a lighthouse fan. He's just kind of an adventurous type of guy. Yeah. Uh, a risk taker like I am. And he's like, let's do it. Whatever it takes, let's do it. And, uh, so that's kind of how that partnership ended up. And we ended up bidding on it and winning it. Um, I think it closed around the end of September and, then it was a couple of years of paperwork to get through the state of Michigan with the, the bottomlands lease and everything. So right. ended up closing on it in June of 2018, and then we got to work. Yeah. So. <laughs> so had either of you been involved in restoring any historic properties before this? You know, Mike does a lot of work down in the Detroit area, and he has been in many historic uh, renovations down there in I am more the residential side, so I've done a lot of residential restorations and historic buildings, mainly in Midland, Michigan, uh, where I lived up until 2013, then moved to Traverse City, and I've done a few homes downtown here, and I'm always fascinated with the old, uh, we call them money pits. I mean, they're basically, you know, turn-of-the-century homes that need a ton of work, um, but are just gorgeous. I mean, it's hard to beat the architecture and the, the woodwork and some of those old Victorian homes just, you know, blow your mind. Sure. And when you bought the lighthouse, or I should say before you bought the lighthouse, were you able to inspect it before you actually bid on it? No, that's actually a very interesting story. What happened was, is being that these uh, lighthouses, and at the time, Gray's Reef, which is five miles south of us, was up for auction the same summer of 2016. And so the government, the GSA, General Services Administration, which is the organization that auctions off these properties, they do everything from Blackhawk helicopters to lighthouses to missile silos. And they had organized a early September 2016 boat ride out of Mackinac City where anybody that had put a deposit down on either Gray's Reef or White Shoal was invited to come for the day. And we had to sign waivers and everything and get on the boat and go out. And we were going to get this one opportunity to inspect, you know, basically the inside and outside. But really, everybody wanted to get inside these lighthouses. We left Mackinac City that morning and round got out under the Mackinac Bridge and it was a decent day, a little breezy, a couple foot chop. Well, 20 miles later, we get out and we start to round um, Wagashan's Point on our way to Gray's Reef, which was the first stop. And the wind picked up and we got into eight to ten foot seas oh. at that point. And people were starting to get a little green. Um, <laughs> pretty much knew at that point that there was no way on earth we were ever going to be able to get off and inspect these lighthouses because in order to do so, you got to pull the boat up, tie it up to basically a big hunk of concrete in the middle of the lake. And with waves that size, even on the lee side of the crib, the boat just gets beat to death, uh, not to mention the dangers of getting people safely off the boat onto the ladder so they can crawl 20 foot up and get onto the crib. So Essentially, what happened is we were we we did a drive by of of Gray's Reef and we did a drive by of White Shoal hmm. and that was it. And the government made it clear that they were not going to offer another inspection um, tour, so it was bid as is. Huh. Um, so nobody really got to see the condition from other than a boat distance away. And to me, that was just fine. I had seen the prints. I knew that this structure was just amazing. Just based on my work with blueprints in the past, I could kind of picture and envision the size of the rooms. And I think that's the biggest thing is people didn't, 
it's very hard to get a scale on white shoal because it just looks like a little, when you're out there in the lake, it looks like a little speck, you know, it's a little tower. And a lot of people just assume that it's a winding staircase up the tower. They don't realize that every single level has multiple rooms. I mean, we've got 5,000 square foot of space on 11 separate levels in this. And I, and I knew based on that number that this thing was enormous. Yeah. And so that was all good. I'm smiling all the way back as people are puking over the edge of the boat <laughs> because, you know, half of them are seasick. I got a big smile on my face as I'm overhearing people talk about, you know, how can we retract our bids? Because they didn't realize. I mean, there were folks there in suits and one gal was in high heels. It was it was really I wish it was on film. Just <laughs> people that didn't have a clue where they were going and what they're you know, up against being that far out in the lake. So, right. So that was that was good. That that really I think that kept the final bid price down. Sure. Um, and so we ended up with it, and that alone was a huge surprise. I, I just couldn't believe it when the auction ended at the end of September. And to be totally honest with you, Mike and I were so far out of our comfort zone, and that was part of the deal. We we wanted to make sure that if we weren't going to end up with it, that we tried our best um, because the bid increment was a thousand bucks. What we didn't want to have happen was you know let's say our our top number was 60,000. We didn't want to lose it at 61. That's mm-hmm. somebody. So we're like bidding double of what we wanted to out of yeah. our comfort zone. Uh-huh. Never really imagining that it was ever going to end in our favor. I figured the thing was going to go for 250, somewhere around there. Huh. And we, we were going to bail long before that. But lo and behold, the bidding came, you know, the hammer came down and it was just, I couldn't believe it. It was crazy. Many sleepless nights. It was a couple weeks of intense bidding. And September of 2016, yeah, to get it up to that amount. So, yeah. And after you were, as it turned out, the high high bidders, and you uh, had your first chance to look at it in detail, to actually land there and get a good look at it inside and out. Did it turn out that it was in? Would you say it was in better or worse shape than you had originally thought? I would have to say that it was about what I expected. I mean, there were certain areas that were in rougher condition than I would have hoped, but structurally, you know, we went through it with a fine-tooth comb, and, and the structure of it, the bones are good. I mean, it's a steel superstructure. It's built like a skyscraper. So even, you know, to this day, the only there's a lot of work that needs done, don't get me wrong, but it's mostly cosmetic at this point. And so I was, yeah, I was pleased. I mean, I knew that we were getting... We weren't going to be walking into something that was, you know, moving ready by any means. But uh, there were a few surprises along the way. But for the most part, it was what we expected. I don't know about Mike. I mean, he he only made it out there to see it, you know, one time in 2016. And then, you know, he just hasn't been able to make it out. He's so busy, busy with his business. So he uh, he's kind of provides a lot of the funding that we need for restoration. But he only makes it out usually once a year to see it but he loves the project absolutely and we couldn't do without him sure now unlike uh, a lot of the people who've bought lighthouses at at auction from the government you've actually started a 501c3 nonprofit organization and you Mm -hmm. have been working to open up the lighthouse uh, for the public uh, including the overnight stays which i want to talk about in a few minutes but was mm-hmm. uh, was forming a nonprofit and eventually having uh, public access was that all part of your plan right from the start when you bought the lighthouse? So that's an interesting question because the nonprofit part of it is actually a requirement to act, to get the land lease. So what happens is is 
the federal government owns the structure, but the state of Michigan owns the land that it sits on, right. which is basically the bottom lands of the Great Lakes, and that's public land. So nobody can own that land. Uh, it's in public trust. So what had to happen is they had to come up with a workaround, is the way I understand it, in order to have us on this property that's owned by the public with a private structure. So one of the requirements to even bid was that you had to form a nonprofit corporation with the state of Michigan. Um, and that was essentially to get the, the, the lease. So what we have is a 99-year renewable lease, uh, no fee, on this bottom of the lake, which we actually had to pay to have it surveyed, you know, so they knew exactly um, where this site was in the lake. And so at the end of 99 years, if, as long as we haven't destroyed the, the structure, we get a, a renewal, an automatic renewal for another 99 years. Um, but that was the reason we had to do the nonprofit. Now, even though we had to form the nonprofit, we're not required to run as a nonprofit. So we could have basically at that point just decided to keep this as a a private cottage, you know, which some folks are doing. And we didn't really know going into it. We had no clue. We were just so stunned that we had actually won the bid and we got out there and then we started to go through the structure and realize how absolutely ornate and just unique it was. And I've been on a lot of offshore lights and this is definitely unique in all, you know, cases. The fact that all the rooms are in the tower and it's so tall, just a lot of stuff. And so at that point, we just kind of looked at each other and thought, you know what, this is way too cool to just keep as a private retreat. And let's open it up to the public. The public deserves to see this thing. And, you know, a lot of it, too, was we're never going to be able to have the funds to restore this thing unless we get the public involved, you know, and go and work through a nonprofit for grants and funds and stuff. So so it was pretty, you know, it was basically that fall after we had visited after the bidding was over we pretty much made that decision at that point that yeah we're gonna we're gonna open this up to the public and and uh, let other folks enjoy it and i think that and we've really we've been glad that we've gone that route how uh i know this is a, a big question maybe hard to answer uh in just a few words but how is the restoration going so far well, you know, we're really just getting started. Uh, we closed on it in June of 2018. So last season, really, I mean, we had uh, 2018 basically was going out there and figuring out how to safely get on and off the structure, starting to take materials and tools out. 2019, we got a little crazy and decided that we were going to actually open it up in July and August for tours. And that was never the intent st starting out. But what happened is we had so many folks on Facebook, especially that just wanted to get out there and see it in its abandoned condition. We got a lot of people that you know love urban exploration. They love to photograph old historic buildings in decay, and so that was something that we were surprised that people really wanted to come out and see it so badly before we even started anything. And so we thought, well, if we can get it to the point where it's safe enough to have people out there, why not use that as a fundraiser? So we went all out and. July 20th of 2019, we hosted our first overnight guests um, and then did day tours all through August and then into September, and it went well. The response was uh, amazing. People really seemed to enjoy it. And so, But as far as the restoration, we're really just getting started. We're still taking equipment out there, trying to get just the basics set up, which we did uh, 2018. We got a bathroom put back in the structure, a shower. 
you know, things that we can, when we go out there, we can actually stay now. Instead of having to go out for the day and then come back to shore, we can actually stay on the structure uh, indefinitely as long as we have enough food and fuel. So what would you say, I know, again, you're early in the early stages of restoration, but what would you say are the biggest challenges you're facing as you get into the restoration? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um, the first challenge that we faced early on was the cormorant issue, which are the seabirds that basically love to perch on the structure, um, starting about the middle of June and then all the way through the end of the season until they head south. But uh, they love to hang out there, and then they dive. These uh, cormorants can dive down up to 100 feet, and yep. they just eat tons of fish. And then they sit on the deck and, and, you know, their guano just collects and huge, huge mess. Just the, the stench alone would drive most people away. Just, you know, getting close to it on a boat, let alone going up and walking on it. We found that basically the only uh, remedy to the cormorants is human activity. So when there's somebody there on the station, they won't come around. Uh, we also have a bird X system, which is an electronic system. So if we leave for a day or two, we can turn that on. It's just a tape loop of predatory bird calls. That seems to work okay until later in the season. By the time you get to August and they're not nesting anymore, then they, they're just wanting to look for somewhere to, to dry their wings out so they can sit on the structure. So basically going forward, and we did this in 2019, we have to keep someone on station from essentially Memorial Day to Labor Day. Uh, there has to be somebody there. That's the only way that those birds will stay away. And it doesn't take long for them to make a huge mess. A couple of days and they will coat the entire deck in white guano. Yeah. And then we spend hours and hours power washing it off to get, you know, back to where we can actually work there. So that was a huge challenge. The other challenge that's kind of unique to Northern Michigan lights is uh, midge flies, which there's these little uh, flies. They don't bite, thank goodness, but they... They show up in around mid-May, and they last till about July 1st every year. They hatch in the water. They come up, and they coat the structure, literally. I mean, I've got pictures of White Shoal where the tower is literally black mm. um, because there's so many midge flies. And their lifespan is very long. They last like 24 hours, and they land on the structure. They die, and then they kind of roll down the tower, and they end up at the base down where the you know boathouse is, and, and we have to literally shovel them off, um, you know, five inches deep of midfly carcasses. So that's a huge mess and kind of a nuisance. And a lot of folks ask, you know, why don't we open the structure up for tours and overnight stays in May and June? Uh, and that's the reason, because the flies basically carry you away. Now, they don't get in the structure. For the most part, they stay outside, which is nice. But if you're working outside at all in May and June, you're going to just be coated head to toe in midge flies and you get used to it you know you get some they taste like you know fish <laughs> fly into your mouth and get in your nose and your ears and oh jeez! it's for the first day it's you know misery and after a while you just kind of get used to it and work around it but so we use may and june as our essentially our work season out there so we get out there and hit it hard and then get all the work that we're going to do for the season done by around july 1st and then start the tourist season so that's been a huge challenge. So, you know, the birds, the flies, the other challenges just have been logistics, getting, you know, we're 20 miles from Mackinac City, which is basically where we come out of with boat material. And it's always a challenge, you know, judging the weather and the wind and the waves and trying to get materials out there safely offloaded, bring back demolition. 
you know, we brought back boatloads of demolition. So yeah, the sewage, you know, we have to store all of our own sewage out there and then bring back that back on tanks uh, to shore. No electricity, so we have to generate our own electricity out there via generator. So just about every challenge you can imagine, which is one of the reasons I love it. I mean, that's what keeps me going back for more. There's just every day there's something that is, you know, an obstacle. Yeah. Seemingly. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, one thing I was wondering about, White Shoal Light, is it's built a little differently than most lighthouses. It has an aluminum lantern, for one thing. I think it's, is it actually the only aluminum lantern on any Great Lakes lighthouse? I believe I, I read that. I think. Correctly, yeah, yeah, correct about that. We've got an aluminum. Basically, the parapet up is all uh, cast aluminum. So the railings are all aluminum. The uh, the glass panes in the lantern room are all aluminum. The copula on top, the, the roof. Yeah. And interestingly enough, based on the 1908 prints of White Shoal Light, it was all specced originally as either bronze or brass. And for whatever reason, and I was told aluminum was quite a, a rare commodity back in 1908, 1909. Mm. So mm-hmm. why they switched to aluminum, I have no idea or the reasoning behind that because it doesn't match the prints. But I'm I sure I'm glad that they used a non-ferrous metal because that has been what saved the upper portion of this light. I mean, the railings are in, you know, they got five coats of paint on them, but when we sandblast them down, they're like brand new underneath because ah. it's all aluminum. Okay. Well, that, that answers so. uh, part of my, my question here. And I was also wondering about the the tower itself. You mentioned that it, it has a steel framework, but it's also made of terracotta blocks and it, with a brick lining. But uh, I was wondering if those unusual materials were basically a good thing or a bad thing or an indifferent thing or whether they present any problems but you say the aluminum lantern and aluminum parts on the the upper part of the tower are a good thing but what about the terracotta is that is that held up well well the, the short answer is no the structure and i get this question a lot you know aren't you worried about the thing getting fall into the lake uh this thing would stand another hundred years easy if we didn't do anything to it now it would look like a wreck cosmetically in rough shape, but the fact that it's a steel structure underneath, and I've seen, you know, you can see the beams are exposed in the boathouse section of the uh, of the tower, and they're just immense, and they're in really good condition. We've got some rust, but they're huge, three-quarter inch thick steel I-beams, enormous, and it was actually, the tower was fabricated on land in Milwaukee back in 1908, and bolted all together. The government came out and inspected it, and then they took it all apart, numbered it, and brought it back out and put it on the crib and assemble it all and rivet it all together. And interestingly enough, the White Shoal Light was being built at the exact same time as the Titanic was being built over in Ireland. So that was right. kind of an interesting stuff that I dug up in the, in the history of it. So they were basically being built at the exact same time. The structure, though, wouldn't go anywhere for another 100 years. It's, it's solid. The terracotta tile, I mean, we had terracotta tile. So what happened was to explain a little bit more of the structure. We got the steel superstructure. Then they came and they wrapped, the, made the tower out of brick, red brick. And there's like two rows of brick all the way around the tower. Then they covered that in like this terracotta tile. And down at the bowhouse level, they actually had, you know, beautiful Roman columns. I mean, it was so ridiculously ornate for where it was located. The fact that the only folks that were ever going to see it was the the guys manning the station and, and the, the freighters and stuff that went by. But what they soon figured out 
about two seasons in was that the freeze-thaw cycle, they were having a lot of problems. These tiles started to fall off the tower, and they would literally come crashing down on the deck, and it started to endanger the light keepers. And so the government had to come up with a solution. Um, so what they did is they wrapped the entire tower in the 30s in a uh, wire mesh, like a steel mesh, and then they came out and they blew uh, concrete, shotcrete, which is basically concrete through an air hose, and they enveloped all the terracotta tile, all the Roman columns, covered it all in a foot of concrete. And so wow. all that ornate de- detail is still there to this day, but it's all entombed in this concrete. So the original walls of white sholite were only about 18 inches thick. Now they're closer to 30 inches thick. Hmm because of all this that they did. Um, and the tower was never originally red and white um, barber pole. It was, it had gone through many different, it was white when it was first built and it was white with a black stripe and it was all black. Um, and then in 1954, we got our famous paint job with the red and white barber pole. We're the only one in the United States that has that. And that, that rocketed white show light into, you know, stardom as far as lighthouses are concerned. Right. Interesting. So, structure itself is just fascinating. We keep uncovering more stuff all the time as we go through it and renovate. It's just the, the craftsmanship is just mind boggling. You know, the fact that they put in so much effort into just even the interior finishing on a structure that far out in the lake. Yeah. It just blows your mind. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the overnight stays. You you originally weren't going to start the overnight stays for at least a couple of years, but like you said, you started it last year. Uh, you started way ahead yep. of your originally planned schedule. So what what has been the response so far to the overnight stay program? You know, we've been very fortunate. Um, we, the 2019 season was our first season to get people out there. And we worked from starting Memorial Day of last, last year, we had to get to a certain point by July 20th when we were going to accept visitors. And boy, we worked around the clock just to try to get ready. And I think we pulled it off fairly well. We had to do a lot of lead paint removal and encapsulation, you know, a lot of safety issues to make sure that we could get people out there and, and get on board safely. But as far as the, the response was just overwhelming. I mean, it really was. I was very pleased with how many folks wanted to come out. And we were very upfront with the advertising, you know, because it's not inexpensive to come out and stay at all, you know, and two-thirds of the cost of your stay is the boat charter, you know, there and back. Um, and then, you know, the fact that we have to deal with all your sewage, you know. when So a lot of people, they look at the price overnight and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, I could stay at the Ritz for that. Well, we're not the Ritz. You know, this is something that's unique. And if people really want to do it, they'll set aside. I always tell people, save up. You know, you save up to go to Disney World, save up to come out to White Shoal Light. But there's a reason that it's it's expensive, and that's because of our insurance and logistics, keeping people safe out there. But, man, it was just, yeah, we pretty much had it booked every night in August of 2019. And then we did a couple unique uh, programs in September. Actually, just one, we did an isolation challenge where we uh, brought the winner of this challenge, got a week to stay out there alone on the structure. Hmm. So. And of course, we monitored them closely and made sure that they were safe and everything. But that was that went over really well. That was kind of a, something I put out there on a, as a joke on Facebook. How would you like to stay 
you know, stranded on a lighthouse for a week. And we had so many people respond that we literally had to do a drawing <laughs> to uh, pick a winner. And then this year, 2020, we've got three separate weeks. So all of September, uh, the last three weeks of September, we got a different um, person or a couple staying out there. And wow. Their isolation challenge, to see if they can make it through a week without going nuts. <laughs> wow. You haven't so. seen the movie The Lighthouse, have you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> Hope it doesn't turn out like that. Uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Anyway, well, let's not talk about that. Do you still, uh, at this point, when we're speaking in mid-February, do you have openings for the uh, overnight stays in the 2020 season? We still do. We're not doing uh, as much. We're doing more restoration in 2020. We decided, uh, the board of directors, that we were going to scale back on some of the tours uh, just so we could get some of the more uh, pressing issues done uh, out there. So we're basically just offering tours in August uh, this year, 2020. Uh, that does include overnight stays. We will do a couple day tours um, where we can bring out up to 30 people for the day. But basically the overnights is kind of what we like the most. It's uh, nice to get folks out there and, and have them there long enough. That was the biggest complaint, the only complaint really we had in 2019. We would bring people from Mackinac City and they'd have two hours on the structure. Well, an hour of that was a tour, taking them all the way up to the top. Then they would come down the tower and we'd have a barbecue lunch for them on the deck and went phenomenal. The problem was, is we just, we needed an extra hour and we didn't have it because of uh, boat logistics and things, but people want to stay longer than what we had allowed, allotted for. So that's something we're going to change for 2020. We're going to have a three hour station time for the two, I think we're going to do two day tours in August. Uh, and then the overnights, you basically have 24 hours on station. We bring you out there around noon. Uh, on the day of your overnight stay, and then you're usually there till noon or two the following day, and then we take you back to Mackinac City. So this year, another thing too we're doing in 2020 is we're providing all the meals. So we're actually going to have somebody out there that's going to cook, and so that'll be different. People want to bring coolers full of stuff, which was a lot of extra work because people always overpack, even though you tell them we've got all these things out there, but you know they'll show up with six bags and two coolers and. <laughs> Right. For one night, you know, and that's a lot of gear to get off the boat, get on the boat in Mackinac City, get off the boat, up onto the structure, up to their room. So we're we're going to be more of a all-inclusive type destination going forward just to eliminate some of that. You know, we, we ended up with so much food out there by the end of last year that we had to give a lot of it away. And it was just, you know, crazy because everybody would bring enough for six meals, even though they were there for one night. Right. <laughs> the fridge would get full. And <laughs> yeah. So those those are some challenges, but overall, the response has been great, and we've got a lot of people that came out on a day tour in 2019, and now they're signed up to come stay the night in 2020. So, but in by June 1st, there'll probably be a few openings. Um, the best thing to do is to check the website um, to see uh, if we have any openings. But we'll, I'm assuming we'll still have some openings for not only day tours but also overnight stays mm-hmm. at that point. So, and since you mentioned it, what is the website? Yeah, it's preservewhiteshoal.org. And there's also a Facebook page, right? Correct. Yep. It's yeah. uh, White Shoal Light Historical Preservation Society. Yeah, I was just looking at that today. There's uh, some great 
winter pictures with ice around the lighthouse. And although I guess this <laughs> this winter hasn't been as bad as as most, not as much ice around the lighthouse. No, and I'm quite quite disappointed on that because I really wanted to get out there last February, and and I just couldn't based on. Um, my schedule at home and we had great ice out there last year. We had snowmobilers going out to the light mm. uh, from Beaver Island and things. But this year, absolutely not. In fact, uh, the pictures that I just received a couple of weeks ago was showing open water still around White Shoal. So wow. and it's a seven mile trek out there to the closest point of land. Um, so it's not something you want to take lightly. I think an airboat eventually, hopefully you'll we'll have an airboat or something hmm. where you could uh, skim across the, the ice and maybe the open water if you hit, hit open water to get out there. But I'd love to stay out there in the winter for a couple of weeks. That just brought another question to mind. I'm just wondering if the uh, historically high uh, water, the lake levels are affecting the lighthouse at all? No, believe it or not, we're very fortunate in that sense that, uh, because you're right, I mean, the water levels are up almost four feet from even 2016 when we purchased the thing. And it hasn't had an effect on us. Um, believe it or not, low water is our biggest enemy. Most people are very surprised to hear that this structure sits on a, a wooden foundation. So basically it, you know, you've got a wood 12 inch white oak timbers that they made into like a Lincoln log cabin, 72 foot square. And they took it out there and leveled off the bottom of the lake and sunk this wood structure down in and then filled it up with, with stone. And that is our foundation. It's not mechanically connected to the bottom of the lake. This whole structure sits on the lake under its own weight. There's, it doesn't go down to bedrock or anything. And these timbers, because they're oak, as long as they stay wet, they're fine. They'll last for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. The minute they're exposed to air is when you get into problem. And back in 2013, we were right at that borderline of where the timbers were starting to get exposed. Luckily, it didn't get bad enough at White Shoal where they had to do anything. But at Gray's Reef, five miles uh, to the south of us, they had uh, four or five timbers that were starting to show out of the water. So the Coast Guard had to go out and they spent a fortune basically putting steel around those timbers and to protect. So really low water is our enemy. The high water, unless it really keeps going up, you know, isn't going to affect us. So we're very fortunate in that sense. Okay. What about people who might want to volunteer at the lighthouse? How does that work? Are you, are you actually looking for volunteers? We're pretty full for 2020 already, but we offer volunteer weeks, which is something that we're doing different this year. Sure, 2019, we had volunteer weekends. And what we found was, you know, taking six or seven volunteers out for two nights, you know, a lot of times it was just a nightmare with the the wind and waves. So we had trips that had to get canceled, postponed. Sometimes we were there for longer than intended. So what we changed in 2020 to kind of help with that is we're making the minimum commitment a week. And that way we can play the wind and weather a little bit more. If you get four or five days out there out of the week, that's going to be a lot better than you know, one night out of maybe two or three that was planned before. But we are offering four individual weeks for 2020, different mm-hmm. operations, we call them, um, for people to volunteer and come out and get their hands dirty. Uh, we, I think we're pretty much look full without looking at the schedule. I'm pretty sure we got all those spots full for 2020. Another program that we're offering for 2020, though, that we're still finalizing is the Lightkeeper program. So we're going to actually have a head keeper and an assistant keeper out there, um, basically from Memorial Day to Labor Day. 
Mm-hmm. They'll have duties to basically, you know, they're going to run the show for the overnight guests and the day tours, you know, changing out bedding and cleaning and, and running the, you know, the generators mm-hmm. and the systems that we need out there. Cool. So we'll have applications available for that on the website. Probably, you know, we'll probably still have positions open in June for that. I just don't know. It just depends on demand. But basically, yeah. that's a week-long commitment. If you want to come out and be a light keeper, it's a week-long commitment. Uh, to come out and stay and, and we'll train you and then you get to stay there for that amount of time and experience what that lifestyle is like. So. <laughs> Sounds great. I just want to mention uh, Jill Orr who contacted me mm-hmm. a while back and actually referred me to you and gave us a, a statement about how she loves volunteering for you and uh, we read that on the podcast a couple of months ago so I, I did want to mention her and thank her also. Yes. Yep. She's been absolutely essential to this whole project. We've got so many people, and I'll, I'll tell you that we're just so blessed. We're surrounded by a huge number of talented and devoted individuals, and there are too many to name, or I'd be here for a half hour naming people, but I just wanted to let you know that we couldn't do even close to what we've done out there so far without people stepping up and, you know, giving their time. We've had boats donated, metal, medical equipment donated cash, you know, expertise, people that are tradesmen that want to come out and help and donate their time and their expertise, folks that have taken upon themselves to run our online gift shop. So it's just apps, you know, that part, I was never expecting that going into this. There'd be that much support for what we're doing out there. And and that's just been an absolute blessing. And so I just wanted to make sure that I, I thank all those folks without naming names that have been involved since day one. And we couldn't do it without them. Absolutely. I'm sure. Uh, what about people who might not be able to physically get to your area or might not be able to get out to the lighthouse, but maybe they'd still like to help in some way? What would you tell them? Well, you know, besides obviously donating funds for the various different projects and fundraisers that we do, we're trying to get more shore involvement. So we're doing the Michigan Lighthouse uh, Festival this year. Uh, I'm going to start doing more speaking engagements starting next fall and into the winter. Um, so we were have, we'll have opportunities for people to help maybe set up booths, uh, man the booths. Uh, I know I did the home and garden show last year in Traverse City, which was kind of just a um, something that I drove was driving by. I thought, oh, we'll try that, and it was phenomenal. Had a lot of people signed up, a lot of visitors, and a lot of tours, and got to speak with even some Coast Guardsmen locally here that came up to the booth and said, oh yeah, I was uh, I worked out at White Shoal back in the 70s. So that was really fascinating. Um, so we're going to try to offer more and more opportunities for folks that yeah, literally can't get offshore for whatever reason to get more involved. Um, there's always a ton of administrative, you know, this project goes year round. I mean, we're out there working for a couple months of the year, but behind the scenes, we're working, you know, through the winter just as hard to get everything ready to go for the time that we can spend out offshore. Yeah, tons of opportunities and we'll have more all the time. We'll try to post stuff on the website and keep people informed of what's available. Sounds good. Uh, let me ask you a big, broad question here. Why should White Shoal Lighthouse be preserved? You know, <clears throat> that's a great question. And it's funny because a lot of people don't even know it exists. It's out there so far out in the lake. You get a glimpse of it from the Mackinac Bridge. You can get a glimpse of it from Highway 2 up in the Upper Peninsula. But it basically looks like a little tiny pencil on the horizon. And so a lot of people, you know, why are you wasting all your time and effort to 
preserve something that so few people get to see. And uh, I think, you know, the fact that it's just part of our maritime heritage, especially in Michigan, we've got so many lights and they're so cool, so unique, and we're not building any more of them. Um, and also, I, you know, to add to that, you know, it was just 40 years ago that the lighthouse was the, that was the, you know, go-to mark for navigation. You would take a bearing on a lighthouse or a point of land on your nautical chart, and that's how the, you know, the freighters would navigate around the lakes. And then, you know, Loran and GPS came in, um, and by the mid-90s, lighthouses have essentially become obsolete. However, I still think it's very important, and that's still why they teach chart plotting and, you know, celestial navigation at the Merchant Marine Academies, because you always have to have something to fall back on. Let's say all the electronics on the boat go out for whatever reason. The last line of defense is still the lighthouse, and I think they'll always have uh, use, um, and hopefully groups will step up and protect them, not only because they're cool structures, but they still serve a function, and I think a very important function. I'm going to ask you one more question for bonus points. What is your personal favorite thing about your involvement with White Shoal Lighthouse? I would have to say for me, um, just the challenge, the logistical challenge, every time I go out there, there's a problem that needs solving. I do a lot of, you know, plumbing by trade. Um, I do a lot of that stuff. I love that trade. Um, that's been a huge challenge out there just to, you know, they essentially when the, the structure was decommissioned in 76, they went out and they took out everything, took out all the plumbing pipe, all the heat, all the electrical. It was basically stripped down to nothing. They left very little behind. Um, and so we're having to go back in and re-engineer all that stuff to more with using more modern, you know, supplies and basically put together those systems and get them all back in place. And that, that to me is the thing that I enjoy the most. I love the, the engineering part of it and the challenge of having to put systems in. So, and the people, I mean, the people are great too. That was a kind of an unexpected, I didn't know how that would go having visitors and, and folks out there staying, but that's been a real nice, you know, added bonus. Well, Brent Tompkins, I, I thank you so much for spending this time with me today. It's uh, really a, a fascinating project, and what you've accomplished in a short length of time is really very impressive. And uh, I wish you uh, much success in the future with the restoration of White Shoal Lighthouse and the public access and everything else that's going on there. And again, th just thank you so much for spending this time uh, with us today. I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Well, yeah, I really appreciate it, Jeremy. Thanks for having us. And uh, one thing, too, I want to mention that we are going to be, we're planning on doing a YouTube channel. We've had a oh. lot of requests. People want to people want to see the day-to-day -day, especially when we're out there working and like the midge flies are carrying us away and, <laughs> and all that stuff so we're hoping to implement that here in 2020 so that's something that folks can dial on to youtube and watch uh, some of the progress and we want to share that as much as possible with with folks going forward so uh, we're excited about that but uh, yeah thanks for for having us and uh for the interview and, and we look forward to anybody that wants to come out and spend uh a night or two offshore, we're open for business. Thanks again to our guest, Brent Tompkins. Here's a little from the White Shoal Lighthouse website about the overnight stays. Quote, 
It is important that our guests realize that White Shoal Light is currently in a state of restoration. If you are expecting a night at the Hilton, this is not for you. What you are buying is an experience. The experience of staying overnight in a very remote light station that is a challenge on a good day just to get to. You are buying the 360 degree sunrises and sunsets. You are buying the chance to be caught out in a storm. You are buying some of the best stargazing opportunities money can buy. You are also buying the opportunity to unplug for a couple of days and experience true solitude and isolation. And most importantly, you are partnering with us to help save this iconic structure, unquote. Well, who needs the Hilton? That all sounds <laughs> it all sounds good to me. Again, to learn more about the White Shoal Light Historical Preservation Society, their overnight stay program, and everything else, go to preservewhiteshoal.org and also check out their Facebook page. Of course, uh, with the current pandemic situation, you want to check out their website for the latest information before you make any plans. Thank you, as always, to all the members, volunteers, staff, and board members of the United States Lighthouse Society at the Point No Point Light Station in Hansville, Washington, and around the world. Visit uslhs.org to learn about the Society's tours, the J. Candace Clifford Research Catalog, preservation grants, the Lighthouse Passport Program, and much more. Thank you to all the volunteers and staff of all the Lighthouse Preservation Organizations in the United States, Canada, Latin America, Europe, Asia, Australia, and all around the world. Keep up all the great work. We are all on the same team. To all our friends in the Lighthouse community, remember that these difficult times will eventually be behind us and things will get back to normal. Stay well and continue to support each other. As always, thanks for listening and keep, keep a, a good, good light. light. I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine.